Welcome everyone to the second in this uh, series, International Political Economy of East Asia series. Um, perhaps I could begin by telling you that the third of, in the series will be next Tuesday in this room, and that one is the big grand title, um, is the 21st Century Asia's Century, so a big overview of um, transition um, from west to east. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about one of the, we'll be discussing one of the most um, interesting and novel developments uh, that have occurred in the region quite recently, and that is the establishment of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And I'm very pleased to introduce two scholars to uh, go through this topic. They'll each be playing a part in presenting their paper. Um, Dr. Matteo Dian will be going first. Matteo is a research fellow at the University of Bologna and also at the moment um, an academic visitor at St. Anthony's College where he's been for the last uh, four or five months. Um, his um, background is in political science uh, in the Ita Italian Academy and he has had various visiting positions at the London School of Economics and also uh, with John Hopkins Sice at the Bologna Centre. Um, he's the author of The Evolution of the US-Japan Alliance and uh, a co-editor of a book on the Chinese challenge to Western order. And obviously, to some degree, the interest in this topic uh, derives from that, that uh, edited, co-edited book. Um, uh, Dr. Sylvia... Menigazi is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Political Science, Luis Guido Carlo University, which is based in Rome. And at the moment, we're taking advantage of the fact that she is a, an academic uh, visitor at the um, University of Warwick. She's a postdoctoral, she's taking, holding a postdoctoral position there. She has um, MSc in International Politics from SOAS, um, MA in Languages and Culture from uh, Rome University La Sapienza and she has spent many uh, visits, many years um, learning the Chinese language and spending time in uh, various parts of China. Her PhD um, is um, uh, partly spent at the Chinese Foreign Affairs University in Beijing and um, uh, completed while she was uh, a scholar in, in Italy. Her research interests also are on um, Western and Chinese international relations theory, foreign policy, civil society, and these questions of order transition in East Asia. So without more ado, I'd like to invite Matteo to uh, kick us off with some general conceptual ideas behind this paper, and then Sylvia is going to talk in more precise detail about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank itself. So thank you very much, and welcome to us. Uh, thank you very much, first and foremost, uh, to Professor Firth for inviting us in this prestigious venue, and I'm sure we will have a very... Um, interesting feedback about our work. Uh, and thanks also for uh, allowing me to be an academic visitor here at St. Anthony's College in Oxford more in general. Um, what we will try to do uh, in this presentation. Um, the first part, and the part I will discuss, um, will be about uh, the theoretical part, so the theoretical understanding 
of uh, the order transition in the station. Um, we will try to, to uh, propose a theoretical framework to how to understand uh, China's role in the region, uh, China's role in changing the region order in Asia uh, through initiatives that are uh, made to uh, not completely uh, subvert the current order, but probably to change it in some extent. Uh, surely we face a new protagonism on the part of China, and this protagonism is not directly aimed at threatening the current uh, international order or the current balance of power. But we will see that there will be few changes, few relevant changes at the regional equilibrium. So in the second part, we will explore uh, briefly the role of China as a region maker. And the third and fourth part that Sylvia will introduce uh, will be on the specific details about this new initiative, the AWIB, and especially on the Chinese discourse about the AWIB, that, as we will see, is quite nuanced, and we will find few different uh, positions, and we will try to map these positions uh, in the Chinese discourse. Finally, we will close with the perceptions of the AWIB. I think it's particularly interesting to see how the Chinese message comes across, not just in the region, but globally. Um, what was the, the starting point of this research? This paper, uh, but uh, the broader research that we're doing. Uh, first and foremost is uh, a broad insatisfaction towards the current narrative about the rise of China. Um, we can say that the current narratives are mainly uh, two narratives. Uh, the narrative of the dissident trap, uh, namely, as we all know, as realist structuralist perspective that says that uh, the rise of China has to represent the threat for the established uh, powers, has to create conflict. Uh, the other narrative, the liberal narrative, uh, think about authors like John Eikenberg in this case, uh, tend to argue that China can be socialized, can be absorbed in the current global order. Um, if we go through other theoretical alternatives, of course, we, we find uh, constructivist analysis uh, telling us that China can be either socialized in the current global order or create a new China-centric order in China. If you see um, analysis like uh, David Kant, for instance, uh, Kant puts the rise of China in a quite unproblematic way because basically the argument goes that the other Asian nations would recognize China as a natural leader in Asia. And the transition towards a new order would be uh, not very conflictual and uh, relatively smooth. Um, these two narratives are not very satisfying and not very able to capture uh, the current power or the transition uh, in, in, in Asia. That is our starting point. Uh, so the idea is try to uh, propose a theoretical framework that represents an alternative and is able to read somehow uh, the current realities. Um, so we turn to re uh, theories of regionalism. If we go into, uh, I'll do that very briefly, uh, turn to theories of regionalism, we see that the traditional liberal uh, theory rationalist regionalism says this simply, uh, if we have a network of trade investments, uh, economic exchanges, we will have uh, a bottom-up reaction 
and we will have institutions stemming from this underlying network. This is all the classic Mitanni uh, sort of argument. On the other hand, we have uh, constructivism in English school trying to propose a sort of more nuanced uh, understanding of these dynamics. Uh, constructivist, uh, the constructive approach focuses on identity and norms location. I will go more into details of this. And the English school is, is uh, looking now at the regional order in China, looking how, uh, sorry, the regional order in East Asia, looking at how China proposes a new, a partially different idea of what uh, the primary institutions of the regional international society should be. Um, when we look at constructivist approaches in, in this, uh, related to these issues, we think about uh, works like Amitabha Chaya, for instance. So the idea is that uh, the region is based on shared norms. But these shared norms uh, have to be localized. What does it mean? Uh, other countries in the region, Southeast Asian countries, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, are likely to absorb and be socialized to norms that are more um, similar to the norms that their entity is built upon. So, for instance, if we apply uh, this scenario to our case, uh, not just the AIB, but more in general, uh, the Chinese attempt to promote a partially different regional order in Asia, we will see that there are norms that China is promoting that resound more easily to the East Asian reality or the Southeast Asian reality. If we think about the emphasis on sovereignty, for instance, non-interference, it's much easier to promote a regional order based on non-interference and sovereignty rather than uh, promote and enforce the regional order based on other values, free market capitalism, uh, human rights, uh, responsibility to protect our examples. Um, the other interesting theoretical point to be uh, is surely uh, the recent work on uh, the English school and the English school perspective on East Asia. Uh, from this point of view, what we are looking at is a struggle to redefine the regional society, international society in Asia. So the important focus that we should have is on the contestation of primary institutions, such as balance of power, great power management, so our special right and duties that great powers have uh, to shape uh, the regional environment, sovereignty and the market. Uh, in this case, market refers to uh, basically the balance between the state and the forces of free market capitalism. And what we will see is that there is fundamental process of contestation between two different ideas of market. Uh, if we think about uh, the forms China is proposing for the regional order are quite different from what the United States is trying to enforce. Uh, if we think about Chinese ideas on free trade, RC, AIIB and other initiatives, and we see on the other side the American attempt to promote trans-Pacific partnership, we have two different ideas of what the market as primary institutions or intersubjective understanding of what the market should be, well, they are quite different. And we see a process of contestation between the two. Um, 
So uh, broadly, in the area, we have a normative competition, not just a political and security competition between the United States and China. What are the basic uh, issues we discuss? On the one hand, there is a particularly important um, challenge. So what is actually the region? If we define the process of regionalization on a close East Asian form, means China will be the leader of the region. If uh, Asia takes more uh, Asia-Pacific shape, it entails the prominent role of the United States in the region. Uh, therefore, the process of regionalization and institutionalization will be different. Who's the leader in the process is the direct consequence of this. Uh, if the United States have structural power to shape the region or not, if China does. Uh, what is the normative content of this process? And we will discuss how the AIIB is an interesting case to see how China tends to shape the region according, not just to its interests, but according to its uh, normative preferences. Um, and finally, who will be in the future uh, the provider of public goods in Asia? Uh, at this stage, is still the United States. The United States are providing uh, not just security, but uh, the global currency, which is also the regional currency for international trade in Asia. Uh, they are the leader of the main uh, international institutions. They guide global governments. But probably in the future, uh, China will take this place, uh, at least partially. If we think about issues like uh, the Chinese currency and maybe becoming an internationalized currency, uh, these issues are not technical and not confined to the realm of finance or international economics, are important political issues that are related to the public provision and, and of public goods in the region. And if we go back to the more traditional realist IER theory, we see that state that provides public goods is also the adjunct regionally or globally. So there are very uh, important political states in this debate. Uh, of course, uh, we are thinking about two different scenarios for the Asia-Pacific, going quite rapidly on this. Uh, one Asia-Pacific scenario in which the United States will be the leader in the region. Uh, a strengthened hub-and-spoke system of alliances and security dates. Um, rules, so the normative content of the process of regional integration inspired by Western, US or Western uh, values. And China will be either integrated or contained in this form of regional order. The alternative is the Sino-centric order that doesn't dismiss completely the role of other states, but argues that surely China will be the leader in the region, will be able and willing to provide <coughs> and will be able uh, to spread and fuse uh, Chinese, let's say norms with Chinese characteristics, and here I put in the slide five principles, but not surely limited to that. Uh, the unimportant political consequence will be that initiatives like the AIIB, um, just to take the example of uh, the subject of today's discussion, uh, will somehow drive a wedge between the United States and its allies. 
to many countries, let's say South Korea or Japan, face the situation in which they are politically linked uh, with the United States in terms of security, but their economic prosperity and well-being is strictly related with their integration with China. So this is a very important political dilemma for them. Um, going more in the specific of the regional order, uh, initial Pacific order would be largely based on Bretton Woods institutions, new institutions that have a trans-Pacific shape like the TPP, uh, principles of free market. In this, a free market, I mean something like uh, the free market the United States are trying to enforce in Asia Pacific, something that doesn't have state-owned enterprises in it. Um, and there is hate by part of the United States of limiting the role of state-owned enterprises and state capitalism uh, with Chinese characteristics. Um, the other scenario, a Sino-centric regional order, uh, would be very, very different. Uh, institutions like AWRB, uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, would be the core of the process of economic integration in East Asia. The other important matter uh, is also the role of state capitalism. So the basic difference with we see between free market capitalism with Western characteristics and another form of capitalism in which the state retains uh, control of finance and control of basic investment decisions. Um, and again, I think in this point is very important to point out the role of state-owned enterprises, particularly because the United States, in their effort to promote the Trans-Pacific Partnership, made a very clear point that the regional order the United States would like to see in Asia doesn't include state-owned enterprises at all. If you go to read uh, documents about uh, TPP, as I happen to do, um, you see that it's quite clear that that is a central point about TPP, confining the state-owned enterprises just in China. Um, so, uh, going back to the fundamental point of today, um, what is really AWRB? Uh, it's just a functionalist response to the need for more institutions. Uh, in more practical terms, uh, China has a lot of resources, a lot of money to invest, uh, has a pre-existing network of exchanges that are not just uh, trade, but are financial flaws, are investments. So is the AWRB uh, an institutional superstructure or something that already exists. So this is the hypothesis that stems from uh, the rationalist approach to regionalism. Or is AIIB a potentially successful uh, process of constitutive localization? So what does it mean? In more practical terms, uh, the potential success of this initiative is related to the fact that China is trying to promote investments and infrastructures to countries that are more sensible to principles like non-interference uh, and sovereignty. And we will see that the bank promotes these values. Um, and the key of this success is shaping the region according to values that are basically already there, or to countries that are keen to embrace these values. Or, and this is not... Uh, necessarily 
different from the other hypothesis, but it's just another way to, to put it. Uh, is the AIIB uh, part of a wider pro, uh, process, part of an attempt to contest uh, the key uh, primary institutions of the regional international society in East Asia? So is this new initiative a way to promote the principle of sovereignty non-interference? Is a new way to reshape the idea of great power management? And in this case, I think about relatively small uh, space that China has in terms of global governance. And we'll see that in details in the second part of the presentation. And finally, is the bank, the AIIB, uh, an attempt to promote a different idea of what market is as a primary institution of international society. And again, uh, a way to promote a form of capitalism in which the state can retain a considerable power not just in regulating, not just in investing, but in having a control that goes uh, through uh, decision where and what to do in terms of investment, in terms of controlling the capital via uh, state-owned enterprises and uh, public banks. And it's quite a different way to uh, imagine and think uh, capitalism and development. Um, finally, uh, just one moment to uh, locate this last initiative within uh, the regional strategy that China's been developing, developing during the last decade or more, um, especially since uh, the financial crisis in Asia, 1997-1998, because in that moment, uh, we can see the perception throughout Asia, not just in China, that uh, Asian states can serve the interests in a more profitable way without global norms, without global institutions like uh, World Bank and IMF. And there is the idea that not just China, but Japan tried to do it uh, at the end of the last century. Um, they can try to build an alternative regional order. They can try to provide public goods. Um, Japan tried uh, with an uh, initiative like uh, Asia Investment Development, okay. okay. um, partially successful. Um, but basically, the opposition of the United States made sure that uh, that attempt was not particularly uh, valid. China's been trying in different ways. So, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank is not the only initiative. Uh, one belt, one road is the other, more recent. The entire process of trying to make uh, the Chinese currency a global currency and regional currency before being a global currency uh, is another very significant part of this project. And finally, uh, the regional uh, comprehensive economic partnership and negotiation uh, at this moment is another uh, leg of this project. Uh, of course, before that, we had other uh, initiatives that were more joined with other Asian countries like ASEAN Plus Leach and my initiative, the uh, bond market initiative, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that looks more at Russia and Central Asia. So this is part of a wider and more uh, complex project. It's not just investments and the bank. Um, I will leave the second part to you.
my time for uh, your exhaustive uh, theoretical introduction. Now I would like to focus um, more about the Asian infrastructure investment bank in practical terms, and in particular about the Chinese debate about uh, these uh, new initiatives. But um, before that, I would just like to introduce a little bit the, the, um, the, um, the idea of the global infrastructure spending um, at the international level. So in terms of infrastructure investments around the world, uh, in the US and the EU, 2.6% counts as the 2.6% of GDP, whereas it is 5% in Japan and 8.5% in uh, the People's Republic of China, and if we compare the global infrastructure spending between developed, uh, uh, the developed world and the um, industrialized uh, and the emerging economy, sorry, we can see that whereas in the developed world the infrastructure um, spending has decreased, in particular from 3.6 of GDP to 2.8 uh, GDP, it has instead. Um, increased in the emerging economies, according to the Asian Development Bank, from 3.5 to 5.7. The role of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is is important in terms of overall infrastructure, but uh, we should uh, keep in mind that this role will will not, of course, fulfill all all the infrastructure uh, investments needs that... um, are necessarily worldwide. In particular, the World Bank can provide $223 billion for infrastructure spending. The the, um, Asian Development Bank can provide $160 billion. Sorry, this is a wrong number here. And the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is expected to provide $100 billion in terms of international uh, infrastructure spending. <coughs> the current regime of uh, multilateral development banks uh, for uh, many years has been, uh, of course, uh, um, led by the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, which presents certain similarities. In terms of global membership, the World Bank was established in uh, 1944. Uh, and uh, the membership has expanded widely from 45, uh, 44 members to 188. The same happened for the Asian Development Bank from 31 members to 67, 67 members. And in terms of function, these two multilateral development banks are also similar to a certain extent, in the sense that they are, of course, focusing, um, focused on infrastructure spending, but also on reducing poverty in middle-income countries by promoting sustainable development programs, which is something that actually is not the priority of the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. To understand uh, um, the role of China, and in particular the Chinese initiative, it is also necessary to um, contextualize the Chinese role in the international financial system. Um, China uh, entered into the international financial system essentially uh, when it joined the um, when the country joined the, the two major institutions, which are the World Bank in 1980 and the, the MNF in uh, 2001. 
But of course, China was not only becoming an important member of the international financial institutions, but also of the banking sector, with two major Chinese banks um, becoming member of international uh, institutes, some like the Bank of China, um, which during the 1996 became member of the Institute of International Finance, and also the People's Bank of China becoming the member of the Bank for International Settlements always in 1996. Um, <clears throat> Notwithstanding the fact that, uh, as Matteo was saying, there, is a, uh, there was, a, uh, to a certain extent, an attempt to socialize China to be part of the international financial system, China has been also considered to be as a good student of this system, and in particular for two ma major reasons. The first were the institutional changes that occurred in China at the domestic level. For instance, after China joined the World Bank and, the, and then consequently the International Monetary, uh, International Monetary Fund, China was really keen to establish um, new institutions in order to deal with this, uh, uh, to deal with the World Bank. For instance, it set up uh, a particular um, agency in the Ministry of Finance in order to uh, be in contact with the, with the World Bank. And at the same time, at the international level, because the, um, China's enter entrance into the international financial system also pushed China to be more, uh, um, to uh, provide a more compliance in terms of international standards. And with regards to the, in this sense, the World Bank was very, very uh, important in terms of international bidding programs, not only um, for uh, at the international level, but also at the domestic level for China. For China, <coughs> this is the uh, this is a map about uh, the founding members of the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. And uh, just a short remark, I would like to say that the AIAB, of course, is it is not the only recent initiative provided by China. Another initiative, which is the BRICS uh, uh, New Development Bank, was proposed by China, but these two institutions are different, different because the capital share of each member of the uh, BRICS New Development Bank is, uh, um, is the same for each member. Um, whereas in terms of, as we will see in, uh, in a minute, uh, for the AIAB is different. And actually, the, um, the quota for China in the AIAB is, um, is the same uh, for all the quota that the members have in the BRICS New Development Bank. So it is uh, a different uh, uh, initiative, although these two are very much uh, sometimes considered to be very similar. And this is probably also why the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank was um, was more was considered more attractive um, to other states, not only in the East Asian region, but also, for instance, in uh, in the European context. Um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was officially announced uh, in uh, 2013, respectively, by Xi Jinping and uh, Li Keqiang during their visits to Southeast Asia. And uh, uh, in terms of uh, official documents, there are now, uh, there is available now, um, the, there are available the articles of agreements that entered into force at the end of uh, December 2015. 
the membership as uh, for the other um, multilateral development banks that I mentioned before is uh, a global membership because 22 countries, whereas 22 countries initially signed the memorandum of understanding, uh, the prospective founding members increased to 57 when the article of agreements were uh, signed. But in terms of function, as I was mentioning before, there is, of course, a difference uh, with the, the other two uh, leading institutions because the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is very much focused on the development of, of infrastructure and in particular in uh, Asia, um, whereas it's not uh, um, really focused in uh, alleviating poverty and, uh, and these types of, uh, of programs. If we uh, briefly uh, look at the voting shares of the um, World Bank, um, we can see that uh, uh, these institutions are different uh, to a certain um, compared with the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, and in particular for the uh, for the shares. Uh, the United States detained 15.85 in the. Um, in the World Bank, and uh, <clears throat> this is an important uh, point to be mentioned because one of the major critiques that have been addressed to the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is that the role of China is uh, too big, is too big compared with other members. So we have a similar situation in the Asian Development Bank with Japan that uh, has the 15, as 15.67. Um, as uh, that is the majority, of course, uh, but then is followed by another important member, which is the United States. We have a different situation for the um, for the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. These are the quotas for the um, for the capital share, and uh, China detained thirty point thirty four, followed by India, that has only. 8.52, so we can see that there is a, a huge disparity in terms of capital share, and this is the same in terms of voting share. China has 26.06% uh, and followed by India that has only 7.5. So if we talk about capital share and voting share, Probably this will explain why in, when the uh, Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank was announced, but even now, it is still considered a Chinese-led initiative that will benefit only China. However, if we look at the um, Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank governance structure, and this is interesting because just recently, uh, five uh, vice-presidents uh, have been announced. <coughs> We see that the situation is slightly um, different. Now, how the uh, governance structure works? We have a board of governors, and uh, mm, in the board of governors, each member is represented uh, in the board of governors. And uh, the major power is that uh, the board of governors al al allow new members to become part of the bank. Then we have the board of directors, and uh, the board of directors consists only of 12 members. Of these 12 members, nine members are regional countries, so coming from East Asia, and three members are non-regional uh, countries. 
the power, um, the board of director is uh, the most important uh, component, I would say, in terms of governance structure, because um, its main function is um, to um, to take decision on, uh, regarding major financial uh, policies in uh, within the bank. And, um, and then we have the president. The president is Chinese and is Jin Li Chun. He, he has been appointed and uh, he will be the president of the bank for uh, um, five years. He has an international background and in particular he has been uh, the vice president of the Asian Development Bank uh, uh, from 2003 uh, to 2008, and then uh, the president, uh, the, the board of directors, um, is in charge to uh, nominate vice directors. And as I was saying just recently, which can be from one to seven, and just recently um, five of them were uh, have been um, have been nominated. If we um, analyze a little bit how the bank uh, was um, has been presented by um, by official uh, by the official leadership in uh, in Beijing. Um, I think that there are two major uh, points that should be um, highlighted. The first is that the Chinese leadership has tried to uh, has tried to uh, point out that the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is a regional initiative based on infrastructure. And the second one, which is probably more important. Uh, um, for the international consequences and also for the global governance, is that uh, in at least uh, in the leadership uh, um, official statement, the bank has not been um, perceived to be um, a new institution that will uh, dismantle the existing system of international. Um, institutions, but rather it will try to uh, improve uh, this system in a more uh, innovative way. But as we were mentioning before, we tried in the paper also to uh, map a little bit uh, further the debate about the Asian infrastructure and investment bank. And um, we did so trying to analyze uh, mm, the, the ideas, uh, but also um, the perceptions that have been uh, that, that have been emerged in the Chinese context. And um, we think that this is particularly important because if we uh, look at how the debate is in China, we can also understand how um, different perspective. Uh, um, Emerged in the Chinese context. This is a, um, a mapping of this uh, of this debate. The horizontal scale um, represent, as Matteo was uh, mentioning before, the level of contestation uh, with regards to the Asian infrastructure investment bank and how it could be. Uh, we divide it into a non-alternative, uh, uh, in a non-alternative perspective and in an alternative perspective. And these two, whereas the um, vertical line um, highlights the narratives, in particular the political dimension and the economic dimension about the discourse. And uh, we will see that uh, combined together, um, these uh, uh, different dimensions can provide uh, um, also different understandings about the banks. 
looking at the first uh, political, non-alternative dimension, <coughs> we can see that uh, the major objective uh, um, for China is to increase political uh, um, influence in the region or reward politically friendly, friendly states. However, this does not really entail the willingness by China to contest the normative structure of the region, but rather the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is perceived as a, a supplement of the existing multilateral development banks, the World Bank and the ADB, and in particular also um, as a uh, supplement to the US-led global financial system. And uh, I would like to point out that uh, this uh, perspective is not uh, just a Chinese perspective. And in particular, in this sense, China uh, dissatisfaction towards international financial institutions, according to Chinese scholars, should be intended within a broader perspective that has been um, also um, related and an important um, issue for other emerging economies vis-à-vis -vis, uh, the international uh, financial uh, institution system. In particular, the inclusion problem, which is the fact that most of the times uh, the economies, the, the developed economies, have tended to not really take into account uh, the role uh, that emerging economies play at the global level, and also, and also the coordination problem, the fact that uh, existing international financial institutions de facto have always been based uh, on the um, according to the uh, to the major needs. Um, of, these, uh, of the developed economy. Um, if we instead look at the political but alternative dimension, we see that um, one of the major points for China is to contest the primary institutions, in particular great power management and sovereignty. So there are certain scholars that are arguing that actually the Chinese initiative of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank could represent a new, uh, if we want, willingness to, uh, for China to, uh, to move towards a global financial order, and in particular from a Western governance to a more East-West co-governance. And um, we can see from actually from the uh, from the article of agreements, one of the case is the fact that China was uh, clearly um, not China, but uh, the bank uh, was clearly um, pointing out that, for instance, uh, political the, the, the bank and its presidents and all their staff its staff should not interfere with the political affair. Um, affairs of any member and, uh, um, and in particular so political sovereignty and non-interference is important. Um, from the Chinese debate what emerged is also that uh, <coughs> there is uh, to a certain extent there are to a certain extent negative consequences um, of great power politics uh, when, uh, um, when great power politics mean, uh, mean economic governance. What uh, um, in Chinese has been called the politicization of economic uh, issue, Jinji Wenqi Zhenjiehua. If we look at the other side, um, uh, at, the, um, at the other dimension, which is the economic dimension, we can see that again the, um, in China the, uh, the debate uh, has been uh, has been divided into 
two major dimensions, a non-alternative uh, stance and an alternative stance. If we look at the non-alternative dimension, um, the, object, the major objective for China will be to institutionalize and strengthen pre-existing economic networks in the region, so in, in a uh, sense to, um, to institutionalize the process of bottom-up regionalization. And in this sense, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank has been um, also um, thought to be representative of a new type of international financial institutions. And um, again, the idea is not trying to contest the existing international financial uh, order, but rather to um, become part of it in a more inclusive way. China often talks about uh, this win-win perspective, and uh, in this sense, I would like to point out that, of course, when we talk about win-win perspective, China is also um, is also um, winning a lot from the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. For instance, uh, it, it does not uh, um, it does not deny that uh, to uh, build up this bank. Uh, uh, will, uh, of course, upgrade China's international status and, in particular, in, uh, also China's regional status. But, uh, at the same time, the, um, the advantage to accelerate uh, the Asian, the, and push the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank has also been uh, generated by the need of China, uh, by China to increase interconnected, interconnection and uh, inter, um, and connectivity processes uh, in, uh, in the area. Last is the economic uh, alternative dimension, and this is uh, majorly related to the fact that China uh, is probably uh, also contesting the market as the primary institution, and uh, this is, uh, as Matteo was uh, mentioning before, the fact that uh, China's economic developmental path, path is definitely influenced by, on the one hand, by Asia's historical and geopolitical context, and at the same time by China's by China's own domestic economic context, and in particular here the role of state-owned enterprises is, uh, of course, uh, of uh, fundamental relevance, and at the same time. Um, other, another important strategy is the <coughs> uh, strategy which has been proposed a uh, uh, few years ago, already some years ago, that is the Zhou Chuchu strategy. So China is going abroad. So of course China is in the need to uh, needs money, and uh, the bank will probably uh, will probably a good uh, um, a good way to obtain this money to boom Chinese infrastructure to let Chinese state-owned enterprises have uh, played the, a bigger role. And uh, this is one of the reasons why the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is also uh, many times uh, um, linked with uh, another important uh, um, strategy or initiative, uh, um, as the leadership preferred this uh, second word, that is the um, One Belt, One, um, one Road Initiative. So this is a uh, this was a general um, a map of the of how the, the the idea of the Asian infrastructure and investment bank has been discussed uh, in China um, majorly by Chinese scholars and um, in academic uh, journals that um, we uh, we we. Uh, 
took from the Chinese uh, CNKI, which is the Chinese database, but also on the on the web. And uh, before now, I will leave the floor to Martel for uh, um, for the conclusion and also about the perception outside China. A very brief conclusion, since I think we are running out of time. Uh, um, in order to conclude and also to, to kind of have a broader debate, um, I would like to point out what are the perception of this initiative. Um, on the European side, the reaction has been quite quite positive. As we all remember, I think, was the government of this country that led the opening to the Asian Perception Investment Bank. Uh, then the UK agreed to participate and basically uh, most of other European countries followed. Uh, our country, France, uh, Italy, uh, France, Germany, uh, Denmark, and many others. Um, what was the aim of that? Uh, looking uh, at different countries, and this is not part of the paper, this is just uh, a point uh, for us to debate. Uh, why the UK has a comprehensive strategy uh, in which uh, uh, approach China? Uh, and doesn't involve just this sort of issues, but it's more kind of reorienting uh, uh, the British foreign policy. I would say. Um, other countries had thought less about uh, this sort of initiative, had thought less uh, about the meaning of this initiative. For instance, the government of Italy just joined and thinking that it was a good occasion for our state-owned enterprises to participate and build infrastructures in Asia. So this means purely money and participating to new infrastructural projects. Um, other thought that uh, brought the embrace uh, of China, and particularly uh, the UK, but also Germany, can represent meaningful and useful complement to the standard uh, foreign policy based on uh, the alliance with the United States. Um, somewhere else you can still find that joining this sort of initiative means a way to uh, socialize China within the international order, but I probably I think that is an argument that is fading after, after the economic crisis, the austerity, and the reduction of uh, resources available for uh, foreign policy in different European countries. Um, if we look at the perception of these sort of regional initiatives, and particularly because these sort of regional initiatives are, as Sylvia said before, typically win-win. We are discussing about a bank that is going to build ports and roads in mostly uh, developing countries. So it's an entirely uh, sort of peaceful initiative. Um, this is not a way uh, AIIB comes across in the United States, for instance. Uh, it is considered part of a comprehensive effort to uh, modify the regional order in Asia is a potential competition in terms of providing public goods. And we heard many, many times the argument that uh, the bank represents a way to lowering the international standards. That was the main argument uh, the United States opposed, mainly to the UK when the UK joined. Um, in the United States, there's a lot of people saying this is a way for China to buy influence. Uh, this is a way to put a wedge between the United States and their allies in Asia. But this is a way to spread state capitalism. So uh, my point here, and we go to Japan, the perception is even worse. Um, the point is, it's particularly interesting and important to understand how an initiative that's basically 
providing money for something that is very much needed as infrastructure can be in a way securitized and perceived as threatening. Um, the percep Japanese perception is again not very positive. It's not very positive about rise of China in general, it's not very positive about regional initiatives uh, from all about China. Um, I had the occasion to, to interview a few region, uh, senior diplomats in Japan lately. Um, they argue that the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is basically a ticket to be paid to enter in the Chinese market, or is a form of political competition with Japan. Uh, they are they perceive an institutional power shift from Japan to China. Of course, uh, back in the days it was Japan to promote this sort of initiative. Now Japan doesn't have the resources, the power, or the appeal to do so. Um, there is a clear in their eyes, and it's competition with the a, uh, ADB, even if on the ground there is space for investments for everyone, because there are a lot of infrastructures to be built uh, throughout Asia, but it's not a perception. It's, it's not the message that comes across. Uh, they are afraid that Japanese firms can be cut out. And more broadly, there is a general concern about what the European Union is doing. What they told me is, look, uh, it's fine that uh, European Union and European states, because mostly we're discussing European states, are participating in this. We are not. Uh, but what we perceive is a lack of global strategic thinking about Asia in Europe. Most governments are just following um, the trend of times and participating to dissolve institutions thinking that there is money involved, there is something to gain, there are works for state-owned enterprises. Um, what they see is a lack of broader strategic thinking. What they see is a lack of broader concept of what the future of the regional order in Asia uh, will be. Uh, particularly with the UK and particularly with Germany. Being Germany uh, the de facto leader in Europe, being the UK uh, perceived still as, let's say, middle power, or anyway, uh, a nation that can have uh, a meaningful, long-term strategic thinking about Asia, something that other countries unfortunately lack. Um, this was my last point, and uh, just to, again to reiterate uh, one major point, uh, which is um, the fact that an initiative that is basically uh, sponsoring uh, good things like uh, infrastructures and ports and bridges and roads can somehow come across as something not entirely positive, as something threatening, which is important, meaningful, and also a bit scary about the future of the region. If something that is not uh, related to security is not offensive at all, or is something that is promoting uh, goodwill cooperation and infrastructures indeed can be perceived as something that destabilizes uh, the region. Okay, thank you. I will close. Thank you.